34. He called by everybody else, persons. They are a body the advanced guard of the tiptoes, an army which invaded us some 30 years ago, and which, since that time, has been actively and perseveringly spoiling and desolating our modest, quiet, comfortable English homes, turning our parlors into boudoirs, ripping our fragrant patches of roses into fantastic parterres, covering our center tables with albums and wax flowers, and, in short for these details paint us, stripping our nooks and corners of the welcome warm air of pleasant homeliness, which was wont to be a charm and a privilege, to substitute for it a chilly gloss and an wholesome straining after effect of something less definite in its operation than in its result, which is called gentility, to have done with simile. Our matrons have discovered that luxury is specifically cheaper than comfort and they regard them as independent, if not in compatible terms, and more than this, that comfort island after all, but an irrelevant and dispensable corollary to gentility, while luxury is its main prop and stay. Furthermore, that improvidence is a virtue of such luster, that itself or its likeness is essential to the very existence of respectability, and, by carrying out this proposition, that in order to make the least amount of extravagance produce the utmost admiration and envy, it is desirable to be improvident as publicly as possible, the means for such expenditure being gleaned from retrenchments in the home department. Thus, by a system of domestic alchemy, the education of the children is resolved into a vehicle, a couple of maids are amalgamated into a man in livery, while to a single drudge, superintended and aided by the mistress and elder girls, is confided the economy of the pantry from whose meager shelves are supplied supplementary blondes and colliders. Now a system of economy which can induce a mother to bring up her children at home, while she regards a phaeton as absolutely necessary to convey her to church and to her trades piopla, and an annual visit to the seaside as perfectly indispensable to restore the faded complexions of Francis and Jemima, ruined by late hours and hot cream, may be considered open to censure by the philosopher who places women and girls i.e. unmarried women in the rank of responsible or even rational creatures, but in this disposition he would be clearly wrong, before venturing to define the precise capacity of either an individual or a class. Their own opinion on the subject should assuredly be consulted, and we are quite sure that there is not one of the lady tiptoes who would not recoil with horror from the suspicion of advancing or even of entertaining an idea it having been ascertained that everything original sin and all is quite inconformable with the feminine character unless indeed it be a method of finding the third side of a turn silk or of defining that zero of fortune, to stand below which constitutes a detrimental. The Mrs. Dipto are an indefinite number of young ladies, of whom it is commonly remarked that some may have been pretty, and others may, hereafter, be pretty, but they never are so, and, consequently, they are very fearful of being eclipsed by their dependents, and take care to engage only ill-favored governesses and but these and old tongue very plain cooks, the great business of their lives is fascination, and in its pursuit they are unremitting, it is divided in distinct departments, among the sisters, each of whom is characterized at home by some laudatory epithet, strikingly illustrative of what they would like to be, there is Miss Dipto, such an amiable girl, that island she has a large mouth, and a melon in the middle of it, there is Jemima, who enjoys such delicate health, that island she has no bust, and wears a scarf, then there is Grace, who is all for evening rambles, and the pilgrim of love, and Fanny, who cannot help talking, and whom, in its turn, talking certainly cannot help, they are remarkable for doing a little of everything at all times, 
whether it be designing on worsted or on bachelors whether concerting overtures musical or matrimonial, the same pretty development of the shoulder through that troublesome scarf the same hasty confusion in drawing it on again, and referring to the watch to see what time it is displays the mind ever intent on the great object of their career, but they seldom marry unless, in desperation, their cousins, for they despise the rank which they affect to have quitted and no man of sense ever loved a tiptoe, so they continue at home until the house is broken up, and then they retire in a galaxy to some provincial Belvoir terrace or prospect place, where they endeavor to forestall the bachelors with promiscuous orange blossoms and maidenly susceptibilities. We have characterized these heart-burning efforts after station, as originating with, and maintained by, the female branches of the family, and they are so but, nevertheless, their influence on the young men is no less destructive than certain. It is a fact, that, the more restraint that is inflicted on these individuals in the gilded drawing room at home, the more do they crave after the unshackled enjoyment of their animal vulgarity abroad. Their principal characteristics are a love of large plaids, and a choice vocabulary of popular idiomatic forms of speech, and these will sufficiently define them in the saloons of the theaters and in the cigar divans. But they are not ever thus, by no means, at home which does not naturally indicate their own house. Having done their other waistcoat and their pen emblematic of a blue hand grasping an egg, or of a butterfly poised on a wheel pop. They are gentlemen, with the hebdomadal sovereign straggling in the extreme verge of their pockets with the afternoon rebuke of the principal, or peradventure of some senior clerk. Still echoing in their ears they are gentlemen, they are desired to be such by their mother and sisters, and so they talk about cool hundreds and the points of horses and on the strength of the dramatic criticisms in the satirist of Grisi and Norma and Persiani in La Sonnambula of Taglioni and Serato of last season and the season before that. We know not how far the readers of Punch may be inclined to approve so prosy an article as this in their pet periodical, but we have ventured to appeal to them as the most sensible people in the country against a class of shallow empirics, who have managed to glide in chidden into our homes and our families, to chill the one and to estrange the other. Surely, surely, we were unworthy of our descent. Could we see unmoved our lovely English girls, whose modesty was wont to be equaled only by their beauty, concentrating all their desires and their energies on a good match, or our reverend English matrons, the pride and honor of the land, employing themselves in the manufacture of fishbone blank mange and mucilaginous tipsy cakes, or our young Englishmen, our hope and our resource, spending themselves in the debasing contamination of cigars and alcohol. Condensed Parliamentary Report on the Miscellaneous Estimates, by the Examiner, Mr. Williams objected Sir T. Wild vindicated Sir R. Peel doubted Mr. P.O.U.M.P.D.R.E. opposed Mr. V.I.L.A. Liars requested Mr. E.W.A.R.D. moved Mr. E.A.S.T.C.O.U.R.D. thought Mr. F.E.R.R.A.N.D. complained Lord John Russell wished Mr. A.G.L.I.O.N.B.E. was of opinion Mr. Stuart W.O.R.D.L.E. hoped Mr. W.A.K.L.E. thought Mr. Rice searched Mr. F.I.L.D. and regretted Mr. Ward was convinced taking the HODDs, on a recent visit of Lord Waterford to the Holy Land, then to sojourn in the hostel or caravansier of the protecting banks of that classic ground, that interesting young nobleman adopted, as the seat of his presidency, abroad did Maghog, the private property of some descendant from one of the defunct kings of Ulster, at the close of an eloquent harangue, his lordship expressed an earnest wish that he should be able to continue a hope instantly gratified by the stalwart proprietor, who, wildly exclaiming, Sitayizi, hoisted the lordly burden on his shoulders, and gave him the full benefit of a shilling fare in that most unusual vehicle, 
QED, Sir Robiardi Peel thinks a great deal of himself, says the British critic. Yes, asserts Punch. He is just the man to trouble himself about trifles. Robot defying the thunderer. Robot was seated in his great armchair, looking as senatorial and wise as a calf's head. When taken in surprise, a half-munched muffin did his fingers bear an empty eggshell proved his meal nigh When, lo, there came a tapping at the door, come in, he cried, and in another minute by his side stood John the footboy, with the morning paper, wet from the press, or Robux cheek there passed a momentary gleam of joy, which spoke, as plainly as a smile could speak, your master's speech is in that paper, boy. He waved his hand the footboy left the room Robot poured out a cup of high sun bloom, and, having sipped the tea and sniffed the vapor, spread out the thunderer before his eyes when, to his great surprise, he saw imprinted there, in black and white, that he, the robot he, whom all men knew, had been expressly born to set worlds right that he was nothing but a parvenu. Jove, was it possible they lacked the knowledge he boasted a literary and scientific genealogy? that he had had some ancestors before him beside the pot who wed the moth who bore him and whom the world had slighted, it is true, because it never knew the greatness of the genius which had lain, like an rod or, within each nasty brain, and as a prejudice exists that those who never do disclose the knowledge that they boast of, seldom have any, each of his learned ancestors had died, by an ungrateful world belied, and dubbed as any, that he should be denied a pedigree, appeared so monstrous in this land of freedom, he instantly conceived the notion to go down to the house and make a motion, that all men had a right to those who breathe em. Behold him in his seat, his face carnation, just like an ace of hearts, not red and white in parts, but one complete illumination. He rises members blow their noses, and cough and hem, till one supposes, a general guitar prevails from want of ventilation. He speaks, Mr. Speaker, sir, in me you see a member of this house here, here with whose proud pedigree the thunderer has dared to interfere. Now I implore, that Lawson may be brought upon the floor, and beg my pardon on his bended knees, in whatsoever terms I please. Oh, oh, no, no, I do, propose, to pull his nose, no matter if the law objects or not, and if the printer's nose cannot be got, the small proboscis of the printer's devil shall serve my turn for language so uncivil. The thunderer, I defy and its vile lie, as Ajax did the lightning flash of your, I likewise move this house requires number that's two complimentary desires, that Mr. Lawson's brought upon the floor, the thing was done, the house divided, and the ice were won, express from Windsor, last evening a most diabolical, and, it is to be regretted successful, attempt, was made to kiss the princess royal, it appears that the royal babe was taking an airing in the park, reclining in the arms of her principal nurse, and accompanied by several ladies of the court, who were amusing the noble infant by playing rattles, when a man of ferocious appearance emerged from behind some trees, walked deliberately up to the noble group, placed his hands on the nurse, and bent his head over the princess, the Honorable Miss Stanley, guessing the ruffian's intention, earnestly implored him to kiss her instead, in which request she was backed by all the ladies present, he was not, however, to be frustrated in the attempt, which no sooner had he accomplished, than he hurried off amidst the suppressed screams of the ladies. The royal infant was immediately carried to the palace, where her heart-rending cries attracted the attention of Her Majesty, who, on hurrying to the child, and hearing the painful narration, would, in the burst of her maternal affection, have kissed the infant, 
Had not Sir J. Clark, who was fortunately present, prevented her so doing, this circumstance alone must at once convince every unprejudiced person of the utter falsity of the reports promulgated by certain interested parties of the disloyalty of the Tory ladies, when we see several dames placed in the most imminent danger, yet possessing sufficient presence of mind to offer lip service to their sovereign, editor, mourn, prosed, Dr. Locock was sent for from town, who, immediately on his arrival at Windsor, held a conference with Sir J. Clark, and a basin of pap was prepared by them, which being administered to the royal infant, produced the most satisfactory results. We are prohibited from stating the measures taken for the detection of the ruffian, lest their disclosure should frustrate the ends of justice. A royal duck, his royal highness Prince Albert, during the sojourn of the court at Windsor Castle, became, by constant practice in the Thames, so expert a swimmer, that, with the help of a court jacket, he could, like Jones of the celebrated firm of Brown, Jones, and Robinson, swim anywhere over the river. Her Majesty, however, with true conjugal regard for the safety of the royal duck, never permitted him to venture into the water without high life below stairs. Mitchell Lee, of the Morning Post, was boasting to a Westmacott of his intimate connection with the aristocracy. The aristocracy, more likely, replied the ex-editor of the Argus, Great Annual Michaelmas Jubilee. Magnificent celebration of Goose Day. How often are we George Stevens like to be called upon to expend our invaluable breath in performing Aeolian operations upon our own cornopine? Here have we, at an enormous expense and paralyzing peril, been obliged to dispatch our most trusty and well-beloved reporter, to the fens in Lincolnshire, stuffed with brandy, swathed in flannel, and crammed with jokes, from Wednesday, at the cost of infinite pounds, and numbered rheumatisms and a couple of agues, caught, to speak vulgarly, in a brace of shakes, has forwarded us the following authentic account of the August proceedings which took place in that county on the anniversary of the great St. Michaelmas, from our own correspondent, Tuesday night, depths of the fence just arrived only time to state all mucklidils and festivity Sithorp and extra force betting 6 to 4, he cooks everybody's goose, no takers Disraeli says it's a gross want of sympathy full account tomorrow expect rare doings must conclude WHRRRHH, tertian coming on promises great shakes, I am, sincerely and shiveringly, your own correspondent, Wednesday morning, the day dawned like a second deluge, and the various volunteer dramedies personae seemed like the specters of the defunct water dogs of Sadler's Wells. An eminent tallow chandler from the east end of Whitechapel contracted for the dripping, and report says he found it a very swimming speculation. Life preservers, waterproof and washable hats, were on the ground, which, together with Macintoshes and corks, formed a pleasing and varied group. The grandstand was graced by several eminent and capacious geese, nor was the infantine simplicity of numerous promising young goslings wanting to complete the delightful ensemble. The business of the day commenced with a grand commemorative procession of homage to the prize goose, the representative of whom, we are proud to say, fell by election to the envied lot of the gallant, Jocos, and Joe Military Colonel Sithorpe, order of procession, trumpeter in ordinary to all the geese, and himself in particular, on his extraordinary pegasus beautifully represented by a jackass, idealized with magnificent goose's wings, Mr. George Stevens, Grand Master of Hanky Panky, balancing on the ponzus enorum of his nose the identical goose quill with which he ended the wondrous tale of Alroy, Mr. Bend is really much admired, the great stuffer and crammer, 
bearing a stupendous dish of sage and onions, seated in a magnificent sauce boat, supported on either side by two flight pages bearing applesauce, and a train bearer distributing mustard, Sir Edward Georgia Riley Elightedeal and B.U.L.W.R., grand officiating gravy spoon, a character admirably sustained, and supported to the life, by Peter B.O.R.D.H.W.I.C.K., M.P.N.G.O.G.S. Drawer and Carver-in-Chief, bearing some splendidly dissected giblets, with gilt gizzard under his right arm, and plated liver under his left, Surgeon W.A.K.L.E., M.P. Hereditary Champion of the Pope's Nose, bearing the dismembered relic enclosed in a beautifully enameled Dutch oven, Daniel O'Connell, M.P., the Grand Prize Goose, reclining on a splendid willow pattern well dish, Colonel Waldo S.I.B.D.H.O.R.P., supported by Charles Pearson, and Sir Peter Laurie, with flowery potatoes and shocking greens, Grand Accountant General, with a magnificent banner, bearing an elaborate average rate of the price of geese, and the cheapest depots for the same, Joseph Hume, M.P., this imposing procession having reached the grand kitchen, which had been erected for the occasion, the festivities instantly commenced by the vice goose, Sir Edward L. proposing the health of the gallant chairman, the great grand goose, Mr. Chairman and prize goose, the feelings which now agitate my sensorium on this Michaelmasian occasion stimulate the vibratetuncles of the hardy on hypothesis so as to paralyze the oracular and articulative apparatus of my loquacious confirmation, overwhelming my soul-fraught imagination, as the boiling streams of liquid lava, buried in one vast Sinri's mausoleum the palace-crowded city of the engulfed Pompeii. Immense cheers! I therefore propose a Methuselahmic elongation of the duration of the vital principle of the presiding and Syrian paragon. Stentorian applause! Continued for half an hour after the rising of the prize goose who said, fellow geese and goslings, Julius Caesar, when he laid the first stone of the rock of Gibraltar Mr. Carstairs, the celebrated calligrapher, when he indicated the inscription on the Rosetta stone Cleopatra, when she hemmed Antony's bandana with her celebrated needle the Colossus of Rhodes, when he walked and won his celebrated match against Captain Barclay Galileo. When he discovered and taught his grandmother the mode of sucking eggs could not feel prouder than I do upon the present occasion. Cheers. These reminiscences, I can assure you, will ever stick in my grateful gizzard. Here the gallant colonel sat down, overcome by his feelings and several glasses of Bet's best British brandy. Song, Goosey, Goosey Gander. Mr. Disraeli then rose, and said, Chair, and brethren of the quill, I feel, in assuming the perpendicular, like the sun when sinking into his emerald bed of western waters, overcome by emotions mighty as the impalpable beams of the harmonious moon's declining light, and forcibly impressed as the trembling oak, girt with the invisible arms of the gentle-loving zephyr, the blush mantles on my cheek, deep as the unfathomed depths of the azure ocean, I say, gentlemen, impressed as I am with a sense with a sense, I say, with a sense, hear the haunt, gentlemen sat down for want of a termination, Song, no more shall the children of Judah sing. Mr. Peter B.O.R.D.H.W.I.C.K. having corked himself a handsome pair of mustaches, next rose, and said, Most potent, grave, and reverend seniors, and Mr. Chairman, if it were done, when tea's done, then twere well it were done quickly in rising to drink my custom always of an afternoon the health of Sir Peter Laurie, and whom I can ask, in the language of the immortal bard, where goddest thou that goose look? I can only say, had heaven made me such another, I would not, then Peter Borthwick sat down, evidently indisposed, exclaiming, the drink, Hamlet, 
The drink. Here our reporter left the meeting, who were vociferously chanting, by way of grace, previous to the attack on the roast geese, the characteristic anthem of the king of the cannibal islands, dewired ignorance. It has been rumored that Mr. Bernal, the new member, has been for some weeks past suffering from a severe attack of scarlet fever, caused by his late unparliamentary conduct in addressing the assembled legislators as gentlemen. We are credibly informed that this unprecedented piece of ignorance has had the effect, as Shakespeare says, of making a composition with one's ancestors. Robert, the ex-attorney, and member for Bath, who has evinced a most commendable love of his parents, from his great-grandfather upwards, seeing the utter impossibility of carrying through the whole hog conviction of their respectability, and finding himself in rather an awkward fix, on the present occasion begs to inform the editor of the Times that he will be most happy to accept a compromise, on their literary and scientific attainments, at the very reasonable rate of Punch's histrionic readings in history. Number 1. England. Of the early history of England nothing is known. It was, however, invaded by the Normans, but whether they were any relations of the once celebrated Norman the Pandaloon, we have no authentic record. The kingdom had at one time seven kings two of whom were probably the two well-known kings of Brentford, perhaps. Also, the king of Little Britain made a third, while old King Cole may have constituted a fourth, thus leaving only a trifling balance of three to be accounted for. Alfred the Great is supposed to have been originally a baker, from his having undertaken the task of watching the cakes in the neat herds oven, and Edward the Black Prince was probably a West Indian, who found his way to our hospitable shores at an early period. We now come to King John, who ascended the throne after putting out his nephew's eyes with a pair of curling irons and who was the first English sovereign who attempted to write his own name, for the scrawl is evidently something more than his mark, which is attached to Magna Charta. We need say nothing of Richard III, with whom all our playgoing friends are familiar, and who made the disgraceful offer, if Shakespeare is to be believed, of parting with the whole kingdom for a horse, though it does not appear that the disreputable bargain was ever completed. The wars of York and Lancaster, which, though not exactly cooler de Rose, were on the subject of white and red roses that is to say, China and cabbage, united the crown in the person of Henry VII, known to the playgoing public as the Duke of Richmond, and remarkable for having entered the country by the Lincolnshire fence, for he talks of having got into the bowels of the land immediately on his arrival. Henry VIII, as everybody knows, was the husband of seven wives, and gave to Mr. Elmer the Sadler's Wells Stevens the idea of his beautiful dramatic poem of the wife of seven husbands. Elizabeth's reign is remarkable for having produced a mantle which is worn at the present day, it having been originally made for one Shakespeare, but it is now worn by Mr. George Stevens, for whom, however, it is a palpable misfit, and it sits upon him most awkwardly. Charles I had his head cut off and Mr. Cathcart acted him so naturally in Miss Mitford's play that one would have thought the monarch was entirely without a head all through the tragedy. Cromwell next obtained the chief authority. This man was a brewer, who did not think small beer of himself, and inundated his country with heavy wet, in the shape of tears. For a long period, Charles II, well known as the Merry Monarch, is remarkable only for his profligacy and for the number of very bad farces in which he has been the principal character. His brother James had a short reign, but not a merry one. He is the only English sovereign who may be said to have amputated his bludgeon, which, if we were speaking of an ordinary man and not a monarch, we should have rendered by the familiar phrase of, cut his stick, 
a process which was soon performed by His Majesty. The crown now devolved upon William and Mary, upon whom half a crown apiece was thus settled by the liberality of Parliament. William was Prince of Orange, a descendant probably of the great King Pippin. Anne of Denmark comes next on our list, but of her we shall say nothing, and as the Georges who followed her are so near own time, we shall observe, with regard to them, an equally impenetrable mystery, war to the nail, the British critic, the high church, in fact, steeple journal, tells its readers, if we strike out the first person of Robert's speeches, I, out of his whole career, they become a rope and twisted, and see, and see, and see. This excited old lady is evidently anxious to disfigure the head of the government. By scratching Sir Robert Peel's eyes out, molar and incisor, months, in rigging Lockley upon the late article in the examiner, likening the member for Finsbury, in his connection with Sir Robert Peel, to the bird which exists by picking the crocodile's teeth, jocularly remarked, Well, I never had any body to pick my teeth, I should think not, or they would have chosen a much better set, twenty pounds. Reader, did you ever want twenty pounds? You have you have. I see it I know it. Nay, never blush. Your hand your hand. Reader, sir, I silence. Nonsense stuff, don't. Don't prevaricate on it as I do. Own it and rejoice. Reader, really, sir, this conduct is strange. Granted, don't draw back, come. A cordial gripe. We are friends, we have both suffered from the same cause. There. That's right honest palm to palm. Now, how say you have you ever wanted twenty pounds? Reader, frankly, then, I have, mind to mind, as hand to hand, have you felt as I did? Did its want cloud the sun down wither the grass, and blight the bud? Reader, it did, but how, Mary, how, what? You decline confession so you may I'll be more explicit. I was abroad, far from my fatherland, there's a magic in the word. The turf we played on, the hearts we love, the graves we venerate all, all combine to concentrate its charm. Reader, you are digressing. Thank you, Diane, but I'll resume. While I could by them, friends indeed were plenty. Alas, prudence is seldom company mate with youth and inexperience. The golden dream was soon to end and even with the yellow dross that gave it birth. Fallacious hopes of coming, posts, averted for a time my coming wretchedness three weeks and not a line. The landlord suffered from an intermitting affection, characteristic of the stiff-necked generation, he bowed to others galvanism could not have procured the tide of a salam for me. He still was afflicted with a sort of sinking fondishness. I was the contractor of the small bill, whose exact amount would enable him to meet a heavy payment. My very garments were to boot from all earth's decencies. Splashes seemed to have taken a lease of the bottoms of my trousers. My boots once objects of the tenderest care of their unworthy namesake, seemed conscious of the change, and drooped and entered wretchedness, desponding at the wretched wrinkles now ruffling the once smooth calf. My coat no more appeared to catch the dust, as if under the influence of some invisible charm. Its whitewashed elbows never struck upon the sight of the else all-seeing boots, Spider never rushed from his cell with the post-haste speed with which he issued from his dark recess, to pick the slightest cobweb that ever harnessed Queen Mab's team from other coats, a nap, a wandering hair left its location, swept by the angry brush from the broadcloth of those who paid their bills as far as I was concerned all were inoculated with a strange blindness, it was an overwhelming ophthalmia, the chambermaid, through its fatality, never discovered that my jugs were empty, 
my bottle clothed with slimy green, my soap dish left edinated, a day before this time had been sufficient service for my hand towel, now a week seemed to render it less fit to taste the rubs of hands and soap, dust lost its vice, and lay unheeded in the cram corner of my luckless room, reader, I feel for you, silence, the worst is yet to come, at dinner all things changed soup, before too hot to drink, came to my lips cool as if the north wind had caressed it, number was at an end, I ranked no longer like a human being, I was a huge auto-walking cipher of idle round oh I had neither beginning nor end, go where I would top, bottom, sides, twas all the same, bully avoided me vegetables declined growing under my eyes fowls fled from me, I might as well have longed for ice cream in Iceland dessert in a desert, I had no turn I was the last man, nevertheless, dinner was a necessary evil, reader, and he, was excluded from the calendar, night came, but no rest all things had forgotten their office, the sheets huddled in and disturbed selfishness, like knotted cables, in one corner of the bed, the blankets, doubtless disgusted at their conduct, sought refuge at the foot, and the flock, like most other flocks, without a directing hand, was scattered in disjointed heaps, reader, did not you complain? I did imprinus to boots boots scratched his head, did a waiter waiter shook his, the chambermaid, strange to say, was suddenly deaf, reader, and the landlord, did nothing all day, but when I spoke, was in a hurry, going to his ledger, had I had as many months as Hydra, that would have stopped them all, reader, you were to be pitied, I was, I rose one morning with the sun it scorched my face, but shone not, nature was in, 